www.ndp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad to be here today. And we welcome your questions as you have been studying God's word or maybe facing a particular issue in your life, family or ministry, and you'd like counsel by God's grace, we will do the best to be of help to you today. The number again, locally, 843-525-1859. That's 843-525-1859, or you can text message us right here directly into the studio at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, and she's here to receive those. ton of questions have come in, and the lines are all busy right now, so let's go ahead and get started. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Rick. It's Bob Drew. I have a question about the Romans 11.25. Sure. Okay, I I understand what Paul is saying in in the chapter 11 of Romans up to 11.25, the fullness of the Gentiles. And so when the fullness of the Gentile is accomplished, what I don't understand then, what happens then? Okay, great, 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 great question. Let me just set the context for everyone who's not necessarily familiar with this section of Romans. Romans has three major divisions, the doctrinal, the national, the applicational. So the doctrine is found largely in one through eight. The national section that focuses on the people of Israel, nine through 11, the applicational section, not that there's not application and doctrine, indeed there is, but the focus or what we might call the practical section of how we take the great doctrines that he has unfolded uh, start in chapter 12 through the end of the book. In the middle section here, if we can call that, it's not a parenthesis. It's actually a continuation of the doctrinal section in this respect. Paul argues that nothing can separate us from God's love. And of course, the logical question would say, well, I'm not... Don't follow that, Paul. Uh, God said he loved Israel with an everlasting love. It seems like he's rejected them. And so he demonstrates, no, he hasn't forsaken his people at all. In Romans 9, he shows how God elected them. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I wish I could be separated from my brethren if that were possible. Um, He said, the problem is they're just lost. In chapter 10, he uh, shows that while God elected them, the problem is, is they rejected the Messiah. And so he says in 10 they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so they still need to respond in faith. And that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. In chapter 11, he argues that 
God's not done with Israel while he elected them in the past, while in the present they are in unbelief. In the future, they're going to be restored, that God's going to bring them to faith in Christ. And so it's in that context that he says in uh, 1125, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And if you notice uh, in the um, new American standard, the typeset changes and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, the 59th chapter and the prophet Jeremiah uh, 31 specifically that deals with the coming of the new covenant. Now this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles is a very, very important phrase. Uh, there are two phrases in the word of God. One is called the times of the Gentiles. The other is called the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles uh, began with uh, the Gentile oppression of Israel when King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC came down and and they have as a nation been under the oppression of Gentiles ever since. Yes, they're back in the land, a fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, they were, became a nation in one day, but they are still under Gentile oppression. The Gentile nations of this world hate Israel. And so there's that phrase, the times of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles. And by the way, the times of the Gentiles goes all the way through uh, the current day that we live in past the rapture through the seven year tribulation period. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to that time frame where God is gathering a Gentile people for himself. And so that's one of the major themes that he uncovers here in the 11th chapter. He describes Israel as the vine, but uh, some of the branches were broken off so that we as wild olive branches could be grafted in. And so we're not to be arrogant towards the branches and look if their unbelief uh, resulted in this huge Gentile uh, in gathering of people, what's going to happen when they come to actual faith? Incredible things are going to happen. In fact, John records a number which no one can count uh, because of Jewish faith during the time of Jacob's trouble or what we call the seven year tribulation period. So the fullness of the Gentiles ends when God completes his church. We call that uh, event, the rapture. There's going to be a day, a moment, a time when the last member of the body of Christ comes to faith, believes in the Lord Jesus and the father will in essence say, go get your bride and Jesus will come and catch us up. We're going to explore this in great detail as we continue through the revelation, we're just in the 12th chapter, but we will address this issue in great detail. Why the Bible teaches what we would call a pre-tribulational rapture. And while it, why is it impossible to have what you call a post-tribulation rapture? If you just apply a simple, plain, um, grammatical interpretation of God's word. With that said, once the church is removed, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy kicks in. Uh, I told people that really essential to understanding revelation is to understand Daniel. 
Now, someone might say, well, Daniel isn't quoted all that much in the Revelation. No, but what is found is the schematic for the book of Revelation. And so that's why Daniel is so important. There are 404 verses in the Revelation. 300 are Old Testament allusions. That's about 75% of the book. And so um, there's a lot of Old Testament passages that are referenced all the way through. We just looked at one on Sunday about the, uh, from Genesis 37, from the dream that Joseph has. But um, what's so important is the time frame. And so Daniel gives his prophecy of 70 weeks, 69, which have been fulfilled. And then he has a space of time between the 69th and the 70th week of that prophecy. We're in that time frame right now. We're in that space of time. We call this the church age where God is gathering a bride to himself. And when the fullness of that bride happens, he'll come and catch the church up. And the 70th week will start with the signing of a treaty through this one world leader called the Antichrist. And so it's during that time that the scripture says all Israel will be saved. Wow. That's pretty impressive. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus comes back, the Bible again makes a distinction between the rapture and the second coming at the rapture. He comes for his bride at the second coming. He comes back with his bride at the rapture. We meet the Lord in the air at the second coming. Jesus literally physically actually returns to the very place. The Mount of olives that he ascended to heaven from and uh, the prophet Zechariah teaches that, that Messiah will come and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, that he'll split the mountain in two. And he's going to create a river that will flow all the way to the Dead Sea, such that the Dead Sea, which is the saltiest body of water upon the earth, will be fresh such that you'll be able to fish in it. But there's not a living organism of any kind, not even some microscopic organism that currently lives in the Dead Sea. That's all going to change. Those are prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. So during this final seven years, God is going to raise up 144,000 Jews who are going to believe uh, they're going to preach the gospel to the world. Uh, there is going to be an ingathering of the nation of Israel such that by the time Jesus comes back, all Israel will be saved. They will look upon him. Zechariah 12 says on whom they have pierced and they will mourn. They will come to faith during this seven year period. And when Jesus comes back, they will literally physically see with their own eyes the Messiah whom they crucified. Now they may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And they weren't alone in the crucifixion because the Roman soldiers were also involved. And so weren't you and I, and that he was pierced through for our iniquities. He, he, um, it was my sins that helped nail him to that cross, but there's coming a time when Israel is going to come to faith. And that's his argument here. And of course he, he precedes these words by saying, if some of the branches were broken off, that's Israel from the, from the olive tree, so to speak, you being a wild olive, that's us Gentiles. We were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root that's Israel that supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, 
but you stand by your faith. So do not be conceited, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in this kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So his argument is, is that when they come to faith, wow. In fact, I didn't read it, but verse 12 of this chapter says, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, and that's what it is, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much more will God do when the Jew actually believes? So that's going to happen. There's always been a remnant of Jews. Paul reminds us that the hardening is partial. It's not total. And there are Jewish people today who are searching, who are looking. I was in Israel two weeks ago, and of course, I was there for the 70th anniversary of, of Israel, and uh, thousands of young people were marching through the street, and I videotaped a, a couple of the instances. We want to rebuild the temple. We want to rebuild the temple. That's what they were cheering. That's what they were shouting. Why is that significant? Well, because it's during that 70th week that there will be a rebuilt temple. They don't understand this, but we do as believers because we're not in blindness. And that temple is going to be defiled and an event is going to happen in that temple, which we're going to study in the Revelation, where the Jews are going to recognize that this Antichrist is a false Messiah and that Yeshua is the true Messiah. So... um, Now, that's the quick answer. What I would suggest to this caller is I've preached through verse by verse the whole book of Romans. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org and you click on Romans 11, I think I did three or four sermons just on the 11th chapter. You can go there and you can listen to a detailed explanation where I go back and look at the prophecy that's written in Isaiah and Jeremiah and their context and how God's going to fulfill that. But I spent an hour and 10 minutes just on these last few verses. So that's the short answer, but I hope that will get you started. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. You know, after what happened with Ireland passing the most heinous bill that they could possibly pass to allow babies to be murdered in the womb, I was reading in Isaiah this morning, chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, and it just it kind of hit home what's happening to the world today as it was at that time during Isaiah's time. I just wonder if you might want to expand on that. Well, let me just say that obviously Isaiah lived in a dark time in human history. He's a pre-exilic prophet, and he's warning the people of God that lest they repent, God's going to bring judgment. And he reminds them that their religiosity is external, but it's not of the heart. And so he'll, for instance, talk about the kind of fast that God likes is not just some external fast, but a fast that really comes from the heart and so on. So there were hard issues. And this was the kind of world, of course, that Jesus came into. Uh, The function of the Sermon on the Mount 
is to show that we need a different kind of righteousness than that of the Pharisees. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, really the pivotal verse that in many ways explains the entire sermon is Matthew 5:20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and Pharisees had a righteousness, but it was external. And so he goes on, he says, you've heard the ancients say, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has committed adultery. And so he contrasts the external righteousness that the people in his day have with the internal righteousness that can only come through a second birth. And a second birth is the only way by which you can enter the kingdom of God. So he's not teaching like the Pope who went to the Mount of Beatitudes, who argued that Francis said that if a man just follows the principles in the Sermon on the Mount, even if he's not a believer in Jesus, that he'll go to heaven. That's absolute heresy. And Jesus is not teaching salvation by works, but he's underscoring like the prophet Isaiah of an external righteousness. So think about, you know, Ireland, it's the most Catholic country in the world in terms of practicing Catholics. I mean, Israel has, I mean, not Israel, but Italy has a lot of Catholics, but only 3% of the people in, in the capital of Roman Catholicism, Rome, only 3% of the people in the whole country even attend church in Italy. But in Ireland, the people are practicing Catholics, but it's an external righteousness. So here they, you know, validated taking innocent life. It was their first step. It was one of the few countries left where abortion was illegal. And the people, the, there's a movement, a burgeoning movement that's happening, not just in Ireland, but across the world where evil is growing. And so they had a majority vote where the people said, yes, we want to legalize the wholesale murder of children 12 weeks and under while in the womb. That's what they did. And that's what they were cheering uh, on Saturday. And it was very, very sad, sad, sad direction that they're going in. But this is the direction that God says in the end of time, the world will go in where there is a form of righteousness, but without any real power a form of godliness, but without the power thereof religious people who are lost in Ireland is just a snapshot of really what's going on across the world. So sad day, but um, we're not fearful by it because Jesus said these things must take place. And so we just put one foot in front of the other and will remain faithful no matter what other people may do. All right. Very good. Uh, we've got another question that was dictated regarding generational sin. The Old Testament talks about sin tracking for three generations, but we're also instructed that we are forgiven and redeemed. Would you please reconcile this? Well, you might want to uh, listen to some of my messages in Genesis because it comes up on a few occasions. So God does speak of generational sin. How does generational sin unfold itself? Well, pretty simply, and that a parent becomes potentially the model that his child will follow. And unfortunately, um, many a parent leads 
in an evil way and their children adopt that evil. Now, does that mean that the child's not responsible? No, not at all. Because we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So even this can happen even amongst, you know, obviously God's people. He's addressing it there. Think about Abraham. Abraham was deceitful. And you know who else followed in deceit after him? Isaac. Isaac committed the same lie that Abraham did. She's my sister. And then if you remember, who else was a deceiver? His name was Jacob. And Jacob, the Yaakov is the Hebrew word that means kind of like Kana artist or, or deceiver. And God has to break Jacob as the uh, one of the patriarchs of Israel. And he does break him. And so that after he is broken and repentant of his sin, and he goes through a big process by which God unfolds that in his life. And the very deceit that he committed came back to haunt him. Uh, but God ended up renaming him Israel. And so we speak of the 12 sons of Israel today of the nation of Israel. So it's a warning to us as believers, you know, sometimes our kids can practice what we do. Tell them I'm not home. Uh, I, I can't take that phone call. Just tell them I'm not home. What, what am I saying to my child? I'm saying live for me. And when I do that, then I'm setting a model for them to follow. Now, again, they're responsible for their own sin because God reminds us that even where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But sin can be generational. It can go from one person to the next and one generation to the next. But we can break the chain. You know, very often you'll see, um, you know, uh, uh, one guy who abuses alcohol and he teaches his kids to abuse it and they teach their kids to abuse it. And it's generational. But anyone can break the chain. Uh, God's grace is bigger than man's sin because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But now, of course, we're able to realize that because we're recipients of a new covenant. And that's a little bit different than under the old covenant. Um, Again, people could still make choices, but, you know, there's a lot of choices that people made under the old covenant that under the new covenant, we would say they weren't even believers. I mean, think about David. Uh, He's a man after God's own heart. He had eight wives at one time, at least four at one time, maybe eight at one time, but at least four at one time. We wouldn't consider someone practicing polygamy today to be a believer. But David did that. Why? Because he was an old covenant saint. And so the uh, spread of generational sin was much more heightened under the old covenant than it is under the new covenant and the promise of the new covenant, which is given in two central passages in the old Testament by the prophet Jeremiah, it's spoken in a number of places, but the two central passages is we would dictate them in theology as central passages, like a major capstone. I'm going to park my car here and build a whole doctrine off of it would be First Jeremiah 31, where this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. By the way, the first caller that asked from Romans 11, uh, this is one of the passages that's being quoted in addition to Isaiah. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not again teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they shall all know me. Really? Yes, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
That's the promise of the new covenant. Uh, that's why no one born of a woman was greater than John, That, he, but he who was least in the kingdom of God was greater than John. Ezekiel, the other central passage, 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. What I'm trying to say is under the hardness of a relationship that an Old Testament believer had, the generational sin was magnified. That's not to say that it can't still happen. It does happen even today. But we have an expression of grace and a relationship with God that not even John the Baptist had. So no one ever born of a woman was greater than John, but he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Uh, Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Anthony. Good to hear your voice. What's going uh, on, my friend? Well, Dr. Boyd, I'll say one thing. I'm glad you're all back from Israel. Thank you. Uh, I'm to plug in for the ABF. Tell them people if they don't have an ABF class, Rick got, Rick Foster got the best ABF. Uh, they can come down and, <laughs> and join us. How much should Rick pay you to say that? <laughs> oh, no, that's all right. I've got to get a little, uh, uh, a little pause for the cause for Rick. Gotcha. But he, do, but he does a great job. Quick. Yes, he does. My question is, Pastor, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope I've been listening to you every Sunday morning correctly. You say that we are born again, we have the Spirit of God, correct? Yes. Now, you say that when we are filled with the Spirit of God, that is different, correct? That's right. So the New Testament would make a distinction between the indwelling and the infilling, yes. All right. When you preach... And you began to preach, and you about to preach. You said you pray, and you ask the Lord to fill you with the Spirit of God. Yes. Right. Okay, now, how do you that? This might sound a little crazy, but... Why would I, pray that? Ask, Why would I ask, pray that if I'm not already filled, right? That's well, kind of your right, question. Right. Yeah. No, no, if you ask God to fill you, and I imagine to, if this is to help you make this sermon straight and make sure it's clear and everything else, I believe, right? Yes. Okay, now, how do you know that you've been filled with the Spirit to do this other than just believe in God and His Word that He says He will fill you? Or do you actually know, maybe when you get through, that you've been filled with the Spirit of God? You can understand what I'm saying. Sure. Um, uh, l- let me. Can you, can, go ahead. Can you know? Just say like, if if I go out to and, and when I want to witness to somebody, I should ask the Spirit of God to fill me. Sure. Correct. Right. So when you preach before you do it, is there a way that you know other than believing that God's word says that it's true? trying to say, I'm not trying to say that it's not true. I'm just saying that. No, no, no. I, I get you. I follow your okay. question. It's a great okay. question. Great well, question. Okay. Um, now, I don't go into all this fine nuance because I don't want to get confusing to people, but there is technically two different words that are used for filling, for the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament, in the original Greek New Testament. There's the word plerao that has the idea of control and direction. 
and it can be used positively and negatively, like at the Mount of Precipice. There's a mountain in Nazareth. There's only one mountain. Sometimes you go to Israel and you say, well, maybe this happened here. This could have happened here. It happened around here. There's only one place in Nazareth where they could have taken Jesus and thrown him off a cliff. It's called the Mount of Precipice. And when they do it, the Bible says they were filled with anger. Filled with rage. What does that mean? They were under the control and the direction of their anger. So much so that they climbed all the way up a large hill, walked about a mile from the town to throw Jesus off. This. They were just so ripped at him because of what he said in their synagogue that incriminated them as guilty, as guilty as some of the people in Elijah's day and Elisha's day. Um, another use is in John, um, in the upper room, he says, your, your hearts, John 14 are filled with sorrow. What does that mean? They were under the control and the direction of their sorrow. So there's that word for fill, but then there's another word that's used like in Acts four, in Acts four, Peter and John are arrested. Uh, they lay hands on them. They put them in jail. Um, but many, the scripture says who had believed the message and the number of them came to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders were gathered together in Jerusalem and they threatened these guys and, and they released them. And Peter filled the spirit, said, rulers and elders, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by his name, this man stands in good health. And he says there's salvation. And he's preaching with this incredible boldness. And then, of course, it says when they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. Well, wait a minute. They didn't go to any of our schools. How can these guys speak this way? They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And, of course, uh, what pursues when their lives are threatened is a prayer meeting. And they raised their voices up to God, beginning in Acts 4, verse 23. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our, your, our father, David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant. And they go on, they give this incredible prayer, remembering who God is and what he has done. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak the word of God with boldness. Wait a minute. I thought they were already filled. Yeah, they're filled again, filled for a special task. And when <laughs> this other word is used, you could, I suppose, render it. There's anointing. So when I walk into the pulpit, assuming my heart is right, I'm walking in there filled with the spirit. But I'm asking God for his help for a special task that goes beyond um, just living and walking and driving down the street. And I'm asking God for his help for a special task that he would meet me for this particular challenge that I have. And we should pray that when we encounter those special tasks. So you're in a situation and all of a sudden, 
you know, you're walking with God and because you're walking with God and you're filled with the spirit, he presents, say, an opportunity to share the gospel in, in your heart, kind of like Nehemiah, you send a, uh, a prayer gram up to heaven because it's your lifestyle and you ask God to help you and to anoint you and to minister to you. What do you find? You find yourself saying things in a way that goes beyond human wisdom where God gives you grace and power, where you realize when it's all over, wow, I could not have done that on my own. The spirit of God met me. So, you know, how do you measure that as a pastor? Well, there's a sense in which, um, indeed you, you sense God's pleasure, his anointing, his filling that was different even before you walked into the pulpit. You say, well, does that mean if you're really filled with the spirit, 10 people will come down front and it doesn't have anything to do with that. The, the harvest isn't at the end of the service. It's at the end of the age. And certainly there are times when a pastor may preach and there's a lot of response, but sometimes that's a response that is built up over months of prayer, of seeds being planted. And there are seasons of fruitfulness. So, you know, sometimes I'll have someone preach for me and they'll say, well, you know, nothing really, ha- what do you mean nothing happened? Well, you know, nobody came down. Well, that doesn't mean God didn't work. Uh, you, you can't assess a sermon or the fullness or the anointing of your spirit by what you visibly see. But I do think there is a sense it could be related and I'm not saying it's never related, but I think, too, there is a, a unction, a holy unction that God gives that's beyond human ability, which the preacher of God senses. Uh, the enthusiasm of God that God plants in your heart um, that, you know, just didn't come, didn't come from you. And it came from God in that moment as you, as you needed his help. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Allie from Beaufort did uh, write this particular email. She says, do you have any available sermons on biblical fasting? I'm learning that it is something the Lord wants us to do, and I'm searching different scriptures because I want to understand the importance of it and the different reasons for it. I don't want to just fast without intention. I found many references in scripture about fasting, but I'd love to listen to teaching as well to help me put everything together and understand it best. Well, that's a great question. And I would direct you to uh, a couple of passages of scripture and some sermons I've done. One would be Daniel 10. So you could go to the Daniel series and I expound on the whole issue of what fasting is, what it is not. Or you could go also to searchthescriptures.org where you will find the Daniel sermon. And if you go to Matthew, click on Matthew under the uh, search bar, search by scripture, type in Matthew, and you will actually find more than one sermon on the subject of prayer and fasting from Matthew chapter six. When I preached through the Sermon on the Mount, I went much slower, but I have some sermons where I deal with prayer, fasting, giving all in one, but still nonetheless, I deal with the principle of biblical fasting and what God says about it. So those would be two uh, messages I could direct you to that I think you'd find really, really helpful. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Dennis from Bluffton writes, uh, three Sundays ago in the CBC Bluffton ABF, we learned that the tense in Proverbs 31 Um, verses 10 through 31, 
is different in the NASB compared to the original manuscripts. I would appreciate it if you would comment on the difference and the resulting implications. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's actually correct assessment of this passage. It is true there are different kinds of translations, uh, some that uh, are more literal than others, but if you are a good Jew and you speak Hebrew, and I have learned Hebrew in seminary, so by God's grace I'm able to prepare my sermons in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, but with that said, uh, you will discover that the New American Standard reads virtually identically to the Masoretic text, which was a uh, passage or tra uh, a, a copy of scripture that we had that came about 900 years after Christ. Uh, the great discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran is that it affirmed the accuracy of the Masoretic text. For instance, we found a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. Perfect. Every single verse, every single word. Uh, when you compare that with the Masoretic text that came almost a thousand years later, there was a difference in five uh, letters, so to speak. And the five letters were stylistic uh, changes like the word color, C-O-L-O-R. That's how we spell it in America. Uh, the Brits still spell it C-O-L-O-U-R. Now, we spelled it that way 150 years ago, much like the word Savior. 150 years ago in America, we spelled it S-A-V-I-O-U-R, but through common usage and practice, the U dropped out of both those words. That's the differences in the, in the copy of Isaiah. What does that tell you? It tells you that God did exactly what he promises in the scripture. He preserved his word. Now, with that said, just because his word is preserved doesn't mean that every translation is good. There are some translations that are certainly, I think, better than others, and some have different goals than others. When the Living Bible was done uh, in the 1960s, and then finally the complete Living Bible released in the 70s, uh, it was written so that people who had a very low reading skill, among other things, could understand the Bible. So it was actually written on a first grade level. Uh, the problem with it is it's a paraphrase. And like with any paraphrase, you end up changing the meaning of what was originally said. So I think the better thing to do is to do what the early founders in this country did. And they said, let's teach the kids to read and to write and to excel so that they can read the scriptures in their own language. Um, now, I say all that to say that Proverbs 10, uh, 31, you reference uh, verses 10 to 31, has been used in a number of different ways to build the modern feminist uh, movement. It's called the Eshet Hayel in Hebrew. Um, and it's based on the phrase, an excellent wife who can find. Now, it is true in some other translations, it, it might say a capable wife who can find, a good wife who can find, a noble wife who can find. Um, and then some of the more feministic type of women like to underscore a woman of valor who can find. And what they're trying to do, and by the way, this is an important passage. It's, a, it's actually one of the, there's about a dozen uh, cross-sticks in the uh, scripture where 
you have these different letters of the Hebrew Bible that just kind of gives you the whole thing. So it, it was a passage of scripture that, in fact, I was recently in Jerusalem and I we celebrated a, a, a Sabbath meal in a Jewish Orthodox Jewish home. And not every week, but a lot of weeks, this very passage is read and it's read by the father to the mother. Uh, and so the men would read it and many Jewish people have memorized it because it's one of those, you know, 13 alphabetical acrostics in, in the Bible. And so it was one that people felt like was really important to memorize. But you've got some uh, feminist women like Rachel Held Evans, who takes this passage and she underscores, well, a virtuous woman, not an excellent woman, not a good woman, not a capable woman, but a virtuous woman. And, and, um, and she would say that it's best translated a woman of valor who can find. Well, I don't think it says that. Um, I think it says a virtuous woman, an excellent woman, a good woman, a noble woman. And so her argument is, is that, you know, if you're a stay at home mom, then do it with all your vigor and valor that you can. If you're a nurse, be a nurse of valor. If you're a CEO, a pastor or barista at Starbucks, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're single, do it with all your valor. And she does that, of course, to argue against the traditional biblical roles that God has for men and women. And so she calls herself an evangelical. She's anything but an evangelical, Rachel Held Evans. She's not an evangelical. Uh, she has um, now joined the Episcopal Church. Why? Because of the LGBTQ movement, which she embraces. And so she talks about how the evangelical church has to embrace LGBTQ lifestyle as an alternative lifestyle. That's not biblical. That's heretical. And yet she has huge numbers of followers, tens of thousands of women that follow her. She has no seminary education. Not that that not that you need one to understand the scriptures. I would never say that, but it certainly doesn't hurt. But she pontificates like she's had one and she says, well, this is what the Hebrew means. And she's had no formal training at all. And she's a heretic and she takes Proverbs 31 and she argues that it's not about a woman using her home as a base of operations to complement what her husband is doing, but for a woman to do anything she wants to do in order to eradicate traditional biblical roles. And she does that on the basis of a single word, which should caution you when someone does that, it's not that you can't learn something from a single word, but what you always want to ask is what's the bigger picture? What's the biblical theology and how do other scriptures define this particular doctrine, say of a mother who's a worker at home? So these are important things, but the NASB is quite precise. If you had a Jewish person who knew Hebrew and they were picking a translation, no doubt they would choose the new American standard. It is true that in some translations of the world, because they were limited in what manuscripts they had available, they used what was called the Septuagint to create a translation in their language. And I think that's probably the genesis of this question. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the old Testament. 
And so it's one translation removed. Is the Septuagint bad? No. In fact, it's quoted throughout the New Testament, which tells you that God can validate a translation. But it's just that, a translation. But in some places, the Septuagint was not accurate to the Hebrew text. But God never, ever quotes those inaccurate portions, only those that actually had his stamp of approval on the translation. So that's the challenge of a translation when you take the original language and you take it into a receptor language. But the NASB reflects the Hebrew text beautifully. And I wouldn't shy away from that for a second. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Tim from Bluffton writes, I've been witnessing to a devout Catholic in Malaysia. She has been watching the live stream of your church service every week for the last few months. She even downloads and listens to the messages again. She is extremely confused and frustrated with the Catholic Church's teaching on divorce. I told her about Search the Scriptures having answers to questions like this. I can't find a resource that speaks directly to this on the site. Can you point me in the right direction? Well, I can see why she might be confused because the Pope is coming out with uh, a number of new teachings that some of the more conservative Roman Catholics are questioning. Well, to question the Pope is a pretty significant thing. And so what's happening is he's left some things very open in terms of divorce, in terms of uh, the LGBT lifestyle, sex outside of marriage, and with a more liberal Jesuit perspective, uh, he's opening the door uh, to make some real fundamental changes in Catholicism. But you see, he can't quite do it yet. If he stays on for maybe another six or seven years, he'll be able to replace more red hats, cardinals. He's getting ready to replace 11 with a more moderate to liberal theological perspective. And so if he can stay on for about five or six more years, he'll replace enough cardinals so that the next pope that's selected, I guarantee will be an out and out liberal who will be so far from some traditional Roman Catholic teachings. So, you know, he's, look, we should be welcoming of divorced people. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. What the Pope is doing is he's redefining things. You know, the, a lesbian, a homosexual, that's not an unforgivable sin. But you don't endorse the lifestyle and say it's fine. You don't say, well, you know, God made you this way. And so that's where this Pope is going. And he's radically, radically departing from, look, everything the Roman Catholic Church teaches is not erroneous. There's a lot of things that they've taught that are true and right and correct. They're wrong on some big issues, but they're right on a lot of issues. But with that said, if you want to study this, yes, I have some messages on marriage and divorce and what does God say. Uh, you could go to Malachi 2.16, and I have a sermon on divorce from there because I preach through the book of Malachi. And there God says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. And in addition, you could go to Matthew's uh, gospel. Again, you go to search the scriptures. And what's the icon at the top? Uh, it's called uh, resources. The, yeah. yeah. So you click on resources. And if you uh, click on it for me, Rick, would you? And then what is it? It allows you to browse by, browse by scripture, correct? Correct. So go to scripture 
and then type in uh, Matthew or click on Matthew. It shows different books that I've preached from. And if you scan down, there's one. It's called Dads in Divorce, Matthew 19, 1 to 19. That's the sermon I would encourage your friend in Malaysia to listen to, where I do somewhat of a systematic uh, teaching on it. So here's what we have to do. We have to, you know, teach God's standard, but we also at the same time need to extend God's forgiveness. But the way you extend his forgiveness is not by doing what the Pope's doing, by compromising what God actually says and therefore making it correct this aberrant behavior and saying, well, you don't really need to be forgiven because it's okay to be gay. It's not okay to be gay. And so that's where he's moving. And it's just a matter of time before he will probably get there. Anyway, let's go to the next question. I might add one more thing. Anytime anybody has any question about any particular topic that you may have preached on uh, or spoken about on the Bible line, they can go to searchthescriptures.org, and in the upper right-hand corner is the search box. And okay. so I typed in divorce. And well, what I got, did it bring up? Well, I got a sermon on divorce that you did uh, from Matthew 5. Right, because uh, Jesus addresses it there, yeah. yeah and... Uh, then uh, the series on the Sermon on the Mount, of course, which is the same thing, and then the dads and divorce uh, message that you talked about, and one, two, well, probably uh, two dozen Bible lines where you've addressed this subject. Right, so, and though, though it didn't bring up the Malachi message because that wasn't the sole focus of the message. but didn't tag it with the word divorce. I see. I got, I got you. So. Okay, good. Good, good. So that's that's another way. And again, you know, sometimes people call and ask a question. And I'll just say, well, you know, I've got a whole hour-long sermon on it. Why don't you listen to that? And then after you listen to it, if you have a follow-up question, let's talk about it. Uh, so that's a good place to start. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Uh, we had a caller from Bluffton who would like you to give some advice on how you know when to stop witnessing to someone. If you have patiently witnessed for years, but the person has not accepted Christ and is at times disrespectful about what Scripture says, is it time to you know, stop casting your pearls to swine? can be, you know, so you don't want to bruise the fruit. You don't want to try to pick the fruit before it's ripe. And so if there's just a hardness of heart and the closeness, then you just kind of need to back off and, and just pray and really commit that person. I think of a neighbor who, when my wife and I would go walking and occasionally we'd meet this couple and uh, there would be some real hardness and some real opposition. You know, we, uh, we're going to have a fall festival. Nah. Or, you know, we have this day at our church. We call it nah. And, you know, there was just a hardness. And so with that said, we just prayed and were friendly. And, and then there came a time in that person's life where the bottom fell out. And where did they come? Someone knocked at my door and I invited him in and had the chance to introduce him to the Savior. So uh, sometimes it is appropriate to just kind of back off and pray and you love them unconditionally. You don't love them conditionally. Oh, they don't love my savior. So I don't love them. No, not at all. You, you love them unconditionally. You don't just love those who love you. Jesus said, even the, even the pagans do that. Um, he said, what reward have you for that? He said, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're to love even your enemy. And so you just love them and show them the love of Christ and pray for them. And, uh, ask that God would just uh, continue to work. And you might be surprised the time may come. Sometimes it comes right at the end of life, but it can come. And 
God is certainly long suffering <laughs> and you want to keep praying. Let's go to the next one. All right. Darlene from Groton, Massachusetts writes, I am starting a Bible study with two women I work with. One is a baby Christian. The other is a little further along in her walk. We've decided to do the book of Jude for the summer, and I'd like your advice on a specific study that would be good for these young and faith Christian women. I found one study online at Christian Books that is by K. Arthur and combines First and Second Peter and Jude. My church does a lot of Beth Moore studies, and I don't feel comfortable with her. I'd prefer to do studies the Bible teaches you and not someone's interpretation. Any help would be much appreciated as I want to steer these women in the truth. My hope and prayer is that we would have other women at work join us. Well, if they're new and baby Christians, I'm not sure I would select the book of Jude. So with that said, Jude is certainly a challenging book. I preached the book of Jude one time. I think I preached 21, 22 messages on Jude. The tape quality was so poor, it's not on Search the Scriptures anymore. I know we tried to play it once on the radio, and it just sounded so terrible. Rick just made a good decision. We took that off. But I do think I have one message on the book of Jude. Uh, You'd have to check that for me, Rick, where I think one day I just preached the whole book of Jude in one sermon, something that I'd spent 21 weeks in. So he's checking out searchthescriptures.org to see if that's the case. And he's clicking on Jude. And is there anything there? Um, It was given July 16th of 2006. Okay. So I, I preached the whole book of Jude that day. Uh, with that said, I, you know, deserves a lot more than that. It's hard actually to find a good popular commentary on Jude. Most of the good commentaries on Jude are what we call expositional commentaries, and they're half in Greek, and and so it would be challenging to um, to find one. I can't think of any right now that's written on a popular level that's really going to deal with it in depth. And it's an in-depth book. What you might do, though, if you are just absolutely committed to teaching Jude this summer, would be go to Second Peter, because that tape quality is great. And in Second Peter 2, Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude are parallel chapters in the Bible. Jude's more detailed, but the some of the difficult challenges are in Second Peter 2, and you could listen to that series, and that would give you some really good commentary. But if you're talking about new and baby Christians, I wouldn't start with Jude. I'd probably consider doing the Back to Basics series the first uh, 10 weeks, uh, because that would give the new believer some foundational truths. The book of Jude is a book on... Um, acts of apostasy, how to identify an apostate. And it's not that the new Christian couldn't benefit from that. We can benefit from any portion of scripture, but I think his need is greater than that. And that's to understand some basic principles on how to walk with God. And so I would encourage you to think about doing the back to basic series. There's handouts and everything. They're all prepared and uh, that might be more useful to you. You could listen to the tape And then you could go in and you could teach it accordingly. So just some food for thought. We're out of time. Another hour has just flown away. But we're glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. If you do have questions, uh, you can email them here at tbl at wagp.net. We'll be back in the seat tomorrow teaching on biblical parenting. What is the role of a father tomorrow at Community Bible Church? Hope you can join us.